Amen. Well, good morning again. Say thanks so much for uh, your beautiful singing voices. And uh, again, I want to say a word of welcome to those of you who are new here. My name is Alex, and uh, really glad if you're joining us here for the very first time. This is a great week to join us. It's week one of a brand new series called Fractured. Here's what we're going to talk about just for a couple of weeks. Uh, one of, the th- of all the things that Christians say is true about the world or the universe, one of the most uh, sort of certifiably, obviously true things is that something's wrong with the universe, right? Something's wrong with the world. Obviously, uh, we've been watching uh, things in Ukraine unfold over the last several weeks. It's been heartbreaking. Lord, have mercy. Lord, would you give them this day their daily bread, right? Strength they need and deliver them from all evil. Uh, that's a prayer I've been praying for them as we've been praying the Lord's Prayer this week. Uh, closer to home this week, Chatham County got some national coverage. You see this in the news? Uh, if you didn't know, there was a, a, a school in deep Chatham County. They had a, a mock slave auction where they auctioned off a black kid on the playground with adults watching, right? And this is just not okay. As a church, we declare that's broken, that's sin, that's fractured. There's a demon of racial brokenness that's been a part of our, our country since almost day one, since day one. And we're here to ask Jesus to deliver us from the evil of racial brokenness. That was horrific. Now then, you don't have to look at the news. Most of us have experiences where something's happened to us. Someone's done us wrong, right? And then we all have things in our past that we either regret or should have regretted, right? We violated even our own conscience, the things that we say are right or wrong. We've done things that have hurt people. This is not okay. And this is so universal that you would think the core sort of explanation of the world uh, to the world of sin would be universally accepted, right? But it's not, right? It's very disputed. This idea that sin is even a thing, and, and any of us, is very disputed. Now, part of this is because all of us, myself included, want to justify ourselves, right? Like, I'd rather not be a part of the problem. And part of this is because the church has talked about sin in ways that haven't always been helpful. They've often talked about sin in ways that have been manipulative, controlling, heaping guilt and shame on people. I have regular conversations here at Chatham Community Church with people who I describe as going through church rehab. Church rehab. And many of them are going through what they describe as uh, Catholic or Baptist guilt. They're overcoming Catholic or Baptist guilt. How many of you are overcoming Catholic or Baptist guilt? Raise your hands. Look at that. Look at that. Misery loves company. Look, they're all around you. People overcoming Catholic and Baptist guilt. We're doing what we can here. So, so listen, so today as we get started on a really short series talking about how the world is fractured through this problem of sin, I want to lead with an apology. If you grew up in a church or around religious people that used guilt or shame to club you over the head, to keep you kind of under control or try to steer your behaviors, that is a wrong way to talk about a true problem. And I'm sorry. As a pastor, I just want to apologize for the ways that pastors, people like me and authority, have sort of used guilt and shame to try to control people or leverage people or just heap on stuff. Because here's the thing, religious guilt and shame just often leaves you hopeless and helpless. It actually doesn't help you to move into the grace and mercy, the solution that God has extended to us. So we're going to spend just a couple weeks talking about the problem of fracture, this problem of sin that creates fracture in the world. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about it seriously and honestly, but without piling on guilt and shame as best we can. Does that sound Okay. That's not all right. I mean, not fun, right? Not like, hey, like it's serious, right? It's real. But we're going to do it in a way that I hope is honor, honoring and respectful. Because here's the deal. Easter weekend, just a handful of weeks away. And if you can't understand the problem Easter weekend is solving, you're not going to understand the joy of Easter weekend at all. If your understanding of sin is shallow and thin, your joy is going to be shallow and thin. You're not going to understand the wonders and the mystery and the power of Good Friday or Easter 
Sunday. Christians from the very beginning have said that Easter weekend is God's decisive action in all of history. And if you can't understand the problem that Easter is solving, then you're going to miss Easter. You're going to miss Jesus. You're going to understand like 90% of what he says. You're not going to understand much of the scriptures unless we can get our hearts and our minds around the problem that is in play in Easter weekend that God is solving. So here's three things that I want to kind of frame up, three kind of suppositions that are driving this thing. Number one, sin fractures the world that God created as good and human beings that he declared to be very good. It's like God created a beautiful stained glass portrait picture. And every time we sin, it's like throwing a rock into that glass. And not all rocks are the same size, right? Some are bigger, some are smaller, but they all leave a mark. They all nick it and break it up and fragment it further and further and further. And in the end, the scriptures say, sin isn't just something that we do. It's something at work inside each one of us that needs to be rooted out from the inside out. Sin fractures us, fragments us. Every time we sin, we introduce kind of more fragmentation to the world, and it actually fragments our souls even more. Number two, Easter is the good work of God to forgive sin, to introduce a new power greater than sin, and to offer us a new nature, to be born again in the spirit, like we just prayed over uh, the folks who got baptized today, right? This invitation, this power to overcome sin. Something stronger than sin is in the world. It's the power of the blood to wash away sin, to make us clean again. Easter is God's answer to the problem of sin. And if you don't think that's the most important problem in the world, if you don't think why, like, you don't understand why God would do that first and foremost, you're in good company. The first disciples didn't think that was the most important problem either. The first, the first disciples did not think that sin was the most important problem. They thought the problem was the Romans are conquering our nation and they wanted the Romans out. They did not think that the problem was sin. And then God does this crazy thing. There's a man who is clearly full of God, God's spirit, who gives himself up to death, and then God raises him from the dead and resurrects him in a totally different body. Once in a lifetime, once in history, intervention of God in the world. So the disciples have to then reorder their whole priorities around God's priorities. If this is the most important problem God says is he solving and doing with Easter weekend, then we've got our, we've got our priorities all wrong. Our problems all ranked wrong. And so the disciples spend the next decades after Jesus' resurrection reordering, re-ranking the problems in the world to understand, oh, this is the core problem that God has solved in Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me re-rank my priorities as well. I want to invite you into the same type of journey of these next couple of weeks. Presupposition number three. The gift of the Holy Spirit we've been talking about for the last five weeks is, gives us a new birth, like a new identity, kind of a new thing in us. It also helps us to throw fewer rocks into the glass of the world. And then when we do, the Holy Spirit calls us back and reminds us that grace is at the center of the whole Jesus story. Forgiveness is at the center of the whole Jesus story. The Holy Spirit prompts us and prods us to come back, come back, come back when we wander and drift away. And then the Holy Spirit also animates us, gives us gifts and abilities to be a part of the restoration project of repairing the cracked glass wherever he might send us. For the next three weeks, we're going to kind of operate under these sort of core presuppositions as we talk about fractured. How is the world fractured? How is it broken? What's gone wrong? And how do we participate in making things right again? And how do we prepare specifically for Easter and look ahead to the ways that Jesus has ultimately made all things right again? That's most importantly. Today, we're going to start in one of the oldest stories in the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn me there. If not, it'll be on the screen up here in a little bit and in front of you. Genesis 11, this is the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, and for a little bit of context, really important to remember 
that just a few chapters before this, God creates everything. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis, first book of the Bible. Very beginning, God creates everything. And the very first command he gives to his newly created people made in his image is this. This is the one command he gives them. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. So the idea is that the people were to fill the earth. There's two image bearers right there. And what God wants them to do is not go out there and kind of pillage the earth. What God wants them to do is take his image and take it all over the earth. Take all the goodness, the grace, the beauty of God. I made you in my image to demonstrate my goodness. I want you to take my goodness to the ends of the earth. To subdue it, to kind of bring chaos under order, to, take, to make this world as beautiful already and make it even more beautiful. So they were, to, they, were, they were to take God's image all the way to the ends of the earth. That was the command and the backdrop that forms some of the problem that we start to see here in Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. It says this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Several years ago, I read an interview with Mark Zuckerberg, the guy who founded Facebook. And here, and Mark, Mark Zuckerberg admitted in that interview, he's like, I made a mistake when I first started Facebook. I thought if you, if you increase communication and connection, you would reduce conflict. As we say in the South, bless his heart. <laughs> and so he's at least pretending to say that we're going to go to work at Facebook to try to make less riots and wars break out over social media. It's hard. It's hard. But, but, but here's the thing. Here's what we, and we see in this passage. Technology is not neutral. Technology is not neutral. You can trace the correlation of the iPhone, rise of social media, and teen girls' depression rates skyrocketing over the last 10 years. You can just watch this graph. It's crazy. Because technology is not neutral. It can be great sometimes. But there's almost always the law of unintended and unforeseen consequences. And that's what we see here in the story. The setup of the story, you have the first technological advancement. The very first one. Let's make bricks instead of stone. Use tar for mortar. This is technology like 4,000 years ago, right? 5,000 years ago, right? Ancient tech, right? Hey, nothing wrong with bricks and mortar. We love bricks and mortar, right? We love them. That's fantastic. And if there wasn't this thing called sin at work in us, every advancement would be up and to the right. All good all the time, right? But because good and evil is at work in all of us all the time to varying degrees, you give us bigger tools and bigger weapons, and the results are going to be mixed just like we are. Some good, some not so good. And many, certainly not all, in the tech industry have abandoned faith altogether. And here's what they're selling you. What they're selling you is this. Salvation for you and for humanity is going to come through technology. That's, that's the line out of Silicon Valley. That technology is going to save us. And as Christ followers, here's what we do. We gladly thank the whole tech industry, some of you in the industry, we gladly thank tech industry for all your many gifts, and we firmly declare there is only one salvation under heaven, and it will not come in technology. His name is Jesus. And there is no technology that any human being is going to produce that's going to save humanity. In fact, the track record of technology is decidedly mixed, almost 100%, again, with the law of unintended, unforeseen consequences. And so, my friends, one of the things we need to wrestle with as Christ followers is what's the role of technology in your life? What's your current relationship with technology? Some of you hate it. Ah, hate it. All right, blessings on you as you try to fumble your way through a tech-driven world. 
All those of us, we're early adopters. Like, I love my tech. I love my things. I'm all in, right? I, like, I'm, I, I love the stuff. And then some of us, some of us, some of, us, some of you are a little bit more skeptical about faith and a little more scientifically driven. You have bought the line, hook, line, and sinker, that technology is what's going to save us. I'm here to tell you some really good and bad news. Your technology cannot save us. Only Jesus can. There's only one name under heaven. That will actually bring salvation for humanity. And it's not going to come out of a lab. It's going to come through Jesus. My friends, I want to invite us, as Christ followers, to be people who are thoughtful about how we engage tech. Do you have boundaries for yourself, for your kids? Are you thoughtful about how it's shaping or misshaping your soul? Are you aware of the, of the law of unintended consequences? Are you able to at least be awake to the fact that as technology kind of consumes all areas of our lives, that there's going to be things that it does to us, it does to our neighbors that we want to love and serve as best we possibly can to be awake to those things and also try to mitigate those as best we possibly can. Here in Genesis 11, first recorded technological advancement. Here's how the first technological advancement gets used in Genesis 11 for these people. Genesis 11 verse 4. Then they said... Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Notice those two motivations in yellow. We'll come back to them in a bit. One, make a name for ourselves. Two, otherwise we'll be scattered over the whole earth, which is exactly what God told them to do in Genesis 1, right? To go fill the earth and be scattered. We'll come back to all those in a little bit. Verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Well, this past week I did a thing. This past week I did this thing. I got some partial information. It was a little alarming to me, so I acted quickly on it, and it turned out to not be all fully accurate information, and I had to apologize clean it up. Ever happened to you? Probably not. But this thing, right, like when you get some partial information, hits a button in you, alarming, a little bit anxiety-producing, a little fearful or whatever, or a little bit frustrating, and so you jump on it, and you realize, oh, I should have asked more questions and explored. This is a little bit what's driving these people as they build this Tower of Babel. It starts with technological advancement. They say, hey, let's build a tower that reaches all the way to the heavens. Why do this? Well, why not? Why not build a tower all the way to, 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 to God's place and knock on God's door? We're here. The heavens, that's where authority is, where power is, right? Where immortality is. Let's build our tech so that we're immortal. We can reach immortality. It's the same promise technology makes today, 5,000 years later. Same promise. So let's knock on God's door and tell him how awesome we are. And, and the, the reasons are twofold, right? The first one is this. Like the, the fraction motivation one is to make a name for ourselves. I want to suggest to you that there's actually some good God-given core soul hungers in play here. There's things that these people want that actually they're designed and desired, designed to want. This drive for a name is baked into us from the very beginning because in the very beginning, Scripture calls us a name. In chapter 1 of Genesis, you get a name. The name is image bearer. It's the greatest name God could give anyone. It's a top of the food chain, magnificent, dizzyingly wonderful name, full of love and grace and opportunities and privileges. The name image bearer, when that's your name and you know what your name is, it's beautiful and wonderful. And when you act out of that name, it is life-giving. 
And it's only because human beings have lost this name that we then have a drive to make a name for ourselves because we're living out of an identity deficit. If you forget or forfeit image bearer, what can you possibly do to replace image bearer? My friends, nothing that you can build, nothing that you do, no achievement is ever, ever, ever gonna fill this ginormous void of image bearer. But boy, we sure try, don't we? <laughs> we tons of us are trying. Whether it's at work, at school, in your running club, in your gardening club, online, how many likes, how many approval, how much status, how much sort of applause, how much approval. Watch me build my little mini tower of Babel and make a name for myself in whatever arena you care about. My friends, the, 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 the call, the people, let us make a name for ourselves is our feeble attempt to fill the gap of our identity that God has already given to us, but we forget it or we forfeit it. That's what happens, that's what sin often is, right? Sin is often the result of forgetting or just not living in light of who God is, who you are in God, and living with God in real life, real time. And so what we try to do in our own strength, apart from God, is fill gaps in our hearts and our souls and our spirits. God calls that sin, not because God is mean, but because that's not how God designed the world to work. Listen, my friends, God did not design the world to work in such a way that you went and made a name for yourself. Here's how God designed the world to work. You receive your name from God and then go live like it. Not go out there and make a name for yourself, scrapping, clawing, driving out of anxiety. You receive your name from God. An abundant name, a generous name, an overflowing name full of love and grace and truth. And then you go out and you bring all your technology, all your resources, all your skills, all your gifts to make this world more beautiful and less broken. Can you imagine if the people here in Genesis 11 weren't all about trying to make a name for themselves. What if they live out of their true name? What if they live out of the name they got just three, like just uh, nine, ten chapters earlier, you're made in God's image. What if they use their technology not to build a temple to their own greatness? What if they instead, they built a hospital? Or an orphanage? Or a home for homeless people? Or an altar to the perfect God? Or a temple to the perfect God? Right? Same bricks, same mortar, different motivations anchored from a deeper place because when you have an identity hole that you're trying to fill, you're going to strive and reach and grasp for all the wrong things and all the wrong ways. And you've seen people who are trying to make a name for themselves and you see what it does to them and the people around them. Don't you? Haven't you? My friends, for those of us who really wrestle with this, not every one of you do, but for those of us who really wrestle with this feeling of, man, I want to make a name for myself, I want to achieve, I want to accomplish, all those sort of things, my friends, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit in what the scripture says is true about you. It starts with image bearer on page one. And then, man, Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, they take it and build on it. All these wonderful names, all these beautiful identities, beloved, son, daughter of the most high God, Forgiven, redeemed, holy, saints, all these beautiful names. For those of us who feel that we're trying to build and build and build to make a name for ourselves, what if you just received instead these generous, gracious, abundant names that God gives you and then go and live out of those in a generous, abundant, fruitful, life-giving way that's completely in step with God and not contributing to more fracturing in the world? A hard question, just one quick question, my friends. Are you caught up right now? and trying to make a name for yourself. 
Are you caught up online right now? Uh, you, you, right now, try to make your name for yourself online, in your family, in your workplace, at your school, uh, in your, in, again, in your running club, in your gardening club, whatever your little like, sort of spots are. Are you building your own mini tower of Babel trying to make a name for yourself? And can you stop long enough to let the scripture give you a better name, a truer name than you could ever produce for yourself, and then start to learn to live out of that instead? Second motivation we get from the people who are building this Tower of Babel is they're afraid, right? They're afraid. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the whole earth. Now, that's exactly what God told them to do, but there's some fear factor in that, right? It makes sense that, there's, they're, that they're afraid. First off, ancient Middle East, there's like predators everywhere, like lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, right? Like those things are, are out there, right? And you'd rather be with people behind a walled city than out there in the world as an easy snack for a bear, right? Totally get that. Makes sense. Plus, we're made for community, we're made for relationships, but people are annoying sometimes. And if you find a few people you actually want to hang out with, let's build a city, let's hang out together, rather than scatter all over the place. I like you 20 people, let's actually chill together, right? So there's some good motivations behind this. It makes sense. It, it totally makes sense. So here's how this goes down. Let me give you some babble math. And I think you're going to, if you give yourself a leeway to resonate with this, I think it's going to sound very familiar. Here's babble's math. First, you got a God-given commandment that then meets a reasonable fear. I might be eaten or I want to hang out with people who don't want to be alone. Plus a more comfortable and convenient option equals sin and fragmentation. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. It's more comfortable. You, you know this equation, right? You've walked this before? Like a God-given command, God says to do something or not do something. It stirs up some sort of a fear in you, uh, uncertainty in you. It's going to be a risk. I, I, I don't want to do that. Other, nobody else is doing that. Everyone around me is doing something different. And besides, here's a more comfortable or convenient option. Here's something that I would prefer to do. It's quicker. It's easier. It feels less costly. So I'd rather do that. And when we do that, that leads to this place of sin. And introducing more fragmentation. We disobey a good God who invites us to be a part of his good work. And we are contributing to the fracturing of our relationship with God and the relationships of the people all around us. So here's what God does. God looks down on this little group project. A group project. By the way, how many of you in, in school hated group projects because you always did the, all the hard work? How many of you hated group projects? Okay, I see you. How many of you love them because you're the slacker that lets the rest of us do the hard work? Slackers, we're going to, I wanted to beat you up in middle school. I'm not going to lie. But I only weighed like 30 pounds, so I couldn't beat anybody up. Teachers, here's proof positive why you should never do group projects. The first group project in history was a Tower of Babel. <laughs> group projects are evil. God looks down on this group project and says, look, because of sin, I have to thwart their ability to cooperate together. Because when they cooperate together, because when humans rally together, it's not always around good things, is it? When humans are galvanized together, Sometimes it's beautiful and good, and sometimes it is from the pit of hell. And sometimes it's just foolish or stupid or unwise. And so because this group has been galvanized by this desire to make a name for themselves and make sure they're safe and to disobey the command of God, God comes down and says, I'm going to thwart their ability. I'm going to confuse their language, and then I'm going to scatter them and send them all over the globe, which is what God wanted them to do in the beginning anyway, and they were resistant to it. And so God says, well, I'm going to make you do it anyway. So here we go. Now here's what happens. Many, many, many thousands of years later, one man comes and stares all these same temptations down and looks at the same fears, the same concerns, 
And what he does is he turns the Tower of Babel story completely upside down. And at the very beginning of his ministry, what Jesus does is he gets baptized, just like we got a baptism here earlier today. And what he hears from God his Father is, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you know what? Jesus believes that to the core of his being for the rest of his days. That's his identity. That's who he is. And so he's not traveling around from town to town trying to make a name for himself. You know what he's doing? Serving and loving the people in the margins, the sickest, the weakest, the most vulnerable. And even when people slander about him and lie about him, he's like, eh, I'm not here to make a name for myself anyway. My name is secure. My identity is secure. I'm not going to waste my life and my time fighting stupid battles. I'm here to love and serve other people. So he travels from town to town to town. And sometimes his disciples say, hey, whoa, slow your roll, Jesus. Let's not go to any more towns. This town loves you. We got a big crowd here. And you know what Jesus says? I got to keep moving. Got to keep moving. I'm here to serve more and more people. Eventually, Jesus says, you know what? It's time to move back and go back to Jerusalem. His disciples say, whoa, Jesus, don't go back to Jerusalem. They're trying to kill you there. And you know what Jesus demonstrates by his life? That there's things that are, there are some things that are worse than death. Being outside God's will, that's worse than death. Being apart from God, not being a step of the Spirit, that's worse than death. So Jesus goes into Jerusalem, and it looks like he's made a name for himself. A big crowd sings his praises. Yay, Hosanna, Hosanna. Really nice, except just a few days later, another big crowd's going to say, kill him. Crowds are fickle, aren't they? Make a name for yourself. Invariably tenuous, shaky. Don't build your life around crowds. Build your life around something much more solid. So Jesus goes to one of the worst forms of tech ever invented, a cross. Terrible form of tech, right? Invented to execute people. Not, it's not a glorious death Jesus goes to. Not a, like a famous death. It's like the lowest of the lowest, the most shameful death possible. And there's not a big crowd there singing his praises. Just a handful of people who stick with him to the very, very end. See, here's the deal. Jesus did not come to make a name for himself here on this earth. He surrendered his name and his body to elevate your name. Elevate your body. Goes to, the, goes to the grave. God the Father raises him up on the third day, unbreakable. And then what he does is he breathes his unbreakable spirit into his closest followers. And just last week, we looked at the story of Pentecost. And on Pentecost Sunday, remember the story, the Holy Spirit falls to the disciples and they spill out into the streets. It's the Tower of Babel in reverse. At Babel, the languages confuse the people. At Pentecost Sunday, they roll back the Tower of Babel in reverse. Instead of confusion, the, 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 the disciples speak all these different languages to declare the wonders of God in everyone's own language. Language is not used to scatter people. Now language is used to regather people because there's finally a place where it's safe to regather. Finally, one place, one name under heaven, whereby we must be saved, and not just saved, but we can finally come alive. Where when we galvanize together, authentically surrender to the cross of Christ, we do not do it in such a way to make a name for ourselves or build our own many towers of Babel. When we gather around the name of Jesus, we are renamed, given our real names, and then sent out full of the Spirit to go repair a fractured world. Finally, one place where it's safe to gather. Finally, one place where it's life-giving to gather under the name of Jesus. And the scriptures tell the beautiful story that one day, the resurrected Jesus, the whole-making Jesus, the renewing Jesus, the life-giving Jesus, he's gonna return 
to a planet full of people scurrying about trying to make a name for themselves, to a planet of people living in fear, running from God, to a planet full of people who are all caught off. One day, the Jesus, the, the, the Jesus that we know and love, who was raised again from the dead, who is the whole maker, he's gonna sing out a song over this fractured, broken world. You know what he's gonna sing? Behold, I'm making everything new. Behold, I'm making everything new. Behold, I'm gonna repair all the fracture, all the brokenness. And there'll be no more tears, no more mourning, no more death, no more rock throwing at the beautiful glass that God created because the old order of things has passed away. The new has come. And my friends, that's the promise of Easter weekend, just a few weeks away. As we sit in the reality of a broken world, a fractured world, may our hearts and our minds and imaginations be captured in the wonders of what God has done, the work that God has done in Christ Jesus to take a fractured, broken world and make it new once again. As we close this morning, a few take-homes from the Babel story, some Tower of Babel take-homes. Tower of Babel question number one is just, what's your relationship with tech? As we look at technology, it's mixed in all its, in all its forms. Do you have wisdom around it? Do you have healthy boundaries around it? If you're a parent, especially, are you finding ways to put some boundaries around it? With your kids, it's so hard to keep up with. I know I have teenagers. It's so hard to keep up. But my friends, we've got to do the work we need to make sure that we're not being misshapen and malformed around technology. And man, for those of you who have fallen hook, line, and sinker for the promises of salvation to come through technology, I'm here to tell you good news and bad news. There is salvation for humanity. It is not coming out of a lab. It has already come in the flesh to redeem flesh, to make all things new. Secondly, are you trying to make a name for yourself? Or are you living out the name that scriptures give you, God gives you, Jesus gives you? Are you building your own mini tower of Babel somewhere out of a deficit of identity? Or are you able to sort of sit and receive the good news of the names God has given to you? For those of us who really struggle with this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look through the New Testament this week. Maybe just camp out in Romans. Maybe just Romans 8. Online, I'm going to give some discussion questions. I'm going to encourage people to read through Romans 8. And I want you to find every name the New Testament calls you that, that describes you in Christ Jesus. And I want you to sit in that this week. Just sit in your names. Let them soak in. I want you to saturate in every name the New Testament describes you as, calls you. And then I want you to go live out of those names rather than try to fill a, a, a name and identity deficit out of the brokenness of your own kind of striving and reaching. Well, are you now trying to build a mini tower of Babel somewhere, trying to make a name for yourself? Or can you rest in God's names for you? Finally, Babel math. Here's Babel's broken math. God's commands meet your reasonable fears. You've got reasons for your fears. Plus, something that's more comfortable and more convenient equals sin and fracturing. Have you, have you lived out that in the past? Are you living out of that right now? Is there a place right now where you look at God's command, you're like, I don't want to do that. Nobody else is doing that. That's not easy. There's an easier option way over here. I'd rather do that. Are you willing? Sort of look at Babel's math and say, I don't want to be a part of that math. I don't want, I don't want to walk that path. I'm willing to offer my fears to God. I'm willing to tell him his commands are hard for me. I'm struggling with it. And I'm willing to try to do the best I can to not let my fear or the comfort factor or convenience factor or what everyone else is doing to decide to dictate what I am or not willing to do as I follow the Lord. My friends, as we walk this fractured world, my hope and my prayer is that you and I might contribute less and less to the fracturing, might be more awake and aware of how fracturing is at work in us, and that we might set our hope and our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
the one who offers redemption and who's going to make all things new, who will one day bring wholeness to a fractured and broken world. We look to him, we worship him, and we can't wait till he comes and sings over us, behold, I'm making everything new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to walk in this path. Help us to know your grace and your mercy. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you and your strength and your kindness might make us awake to the places where we might be stuck or struggling in Babel's bath and building our own many towers of Babel. Help us to be humble before you, open before you, to turn away from brokenness, from sin, from the deceitfulness and promises of sin, to walk in your promises We ask for your strength to do this. In Jesus' strong and mighty name, amen, amen, and amen.